1: And welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. I am your co-host, Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'm joined by my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Derek Miles out at Stanford Pediatrics. He is a physical therapist out there. And Dr. Michael Amato, who's a physical therapist at Paulston PT and Wellness. How's it going today, guys? Good morning, Mike.
2: Doing well on my like third coffee of the morning, so can't, can't wait.
1: Well, just based off of our text messages, you're much more of a productive human this morning than Derek and I so far.
2: That's okay. It's been a light week for
1: me. There you go. You've already seen like 10 patients? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm still drinking my first cup of coffee. So, uh, Well, today is going to be all about Um I don't want to take too much time away from this because we're going to dive into it. It's a rather broad and lengthy topic. Um, I know at Barbell Medicine, we get a ton of questions about tendinopathies, and it probably is arguably one of the more prevalent issues, especially if you work with athletes, that it's something that you're going to have to address at some point in time in clinic. And uh, there seems to be, uh, at least if you look at like Instagram and Facebook, some ideas about what's the appropriate management for tendinopathies. So we're going to dive into a lot of this today. Uh, We'll go through defining the terms and kind of what we see clinically with presentation and then looking at management. There are two articles we're going to go over today. The first is ICON 2019 International Scientific Tendinopathy Symposium Consensus Clinical Terminology. And then how do tendons adapt going beyond tissue responses to understand positive adaptation and pathology development, which is a narrative review by some well-known people, which is Docking and Cook. Uh, Most people are probably familiar with Jill Cook, who's one of the leading people in this field as it relates to tendinopathies. So uh, I know both of you guys read through these. What were you guys' initial impressions? Uh, We'll start with the ICON paper.
3: I think both of them are good overviews, but the problem is there's just not a lot to go on as far as hard evidence, which kind of works to our advantage because it lets us define our terms up front, and that seems like what a lot of the movement is going towards right now, and there is some still debate over tendinopathy versus tendinitis and the role of the inflammatory process, but it's mostly switching towards the general term of tendinopathy, which I I think is a move in the right direction.
2: Yeah. I think it's like highlighting how we're at like a turning point with the identification and, and like the research of what we're dealing with. So it's exciting and interesting, but it's uh, there's still a lot of unknowns. Um, but at least we're kind of getting off on a good foot with trying to define our terms and and kind of pose the questions that will be important uh, going forward in the next few years and decades.
1: Well, I'm a, uh, as most people know, term kind of guy. I like defining our terms. So, uh, yeah, I think the uh, consensus paper, if you guys aren't familiar with this as a listener, um, in essence, when they do these, They get a bunch of quote-unquote experts from the field from various backgrounds, so usually various titles, and they come together in a location, I think this one was in the Netherlands, and they kind of sit down and talk about um, collectively how, in this case, how to define the term But these can get from just defining terms to diagnoses to management, so on and so forth, future directions for research. So I think for this particular one, they sent out a questionnaire that the participants filled out. And then they invited all of them to come to the Netherlands and talk about any disagreements that they had in the questions that were asked of them, primarily focused on what terms should we be utilizing when we're talking about what they call, quote, unquote, tendon-related pain. Um, and I know, like, uh, since I've been in practice, I especially locally hear a lot of people still think, say things like tenonitis which implies um, kind of at the... Uh, root of that word is going to be this idea of itis, which is going to be an inflammatory process. And as we'll get into here in a little bit, that doesn't always tend to be the case. And not only is it not, not, we're not really sure how much of an influence it has in symptomatic development, but also um, that tends to make people think, well, if it's an inflammatory issue, then I just need to correct that. So then we have this like introduction of NSAIDs or steroidal implements and, and so on and so forth. So we'll talk about that a lot today. But overall, I think the biggest takeaway, as Derek was saying, was we want to really shift the entire communication around this topic towards tendinopathy. And so tendinitis, we want to move away from because of the inflammatory implications. Tendinosis, which I've I've actually heard people use, and I was kind of, um, I guess, shocked that I I saw in here that they didn't think that there was enough evidence to utilize that term. What were you guys' thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I... I actually, like, forgot about that term, but that was something that we used a lot in um, in our graduate school, like in PT school. We we kind of learned the continuum of like itis to osis, and apathy wasn't really used yet. Um yeah. And then as we as I kind of moved away from schooling and learned more about kind of like the more of the apathy language, I like completely forgot about osis. But it, it, it can get kind of confusing, I think, and I, I think that's why they were moving away from it because they were trying to get away from pinning it just on um, the the tissue changes that they're seeing in the the imaging findings.
3: Yeah, I think the apathy is the better suffix at this time, just because it does imply that someone's symptomatic and we can see changes that would be considered not ideal and a high prevalence of those changes long before anyone ever presents with symptoms. So it's just making a delineation between the two.
1: Yeah, I, I like tenopathy because it moves us away from like being overly reductionist as this one problem to try and fix as it relates to, to this patient population. And so um, looking at apathy as the preferred term, like the, the biggest thing we have to remember with this is the reason we're kind of talking about this is the types of terms we use to discuss matters leads to ideas of what treatment should be uh, done to the person. And the big article that comes to mind that I like a lot is Nicolette L. from 2017, which is a systematic review on how terminology influences patient selection of treatment. And based on that discussion between clinician and patient can have profound impacts on what the patient thinks should be done for their case to get the likely outcomes. And so, and that's kind of what the authors in this consistent statement are saying is, you know, this is why we need to use this very umbrella like term to move us away from this one way of trying to fix this issue. I thought it was interesting that I had a note in here that the, the term does not imply the presence of a particular pathological or biochemical process, which cannot routinely be assessed clinically. I think they're just, with that statement, trying to further move us away from any, any reductionist-type thinking. You guys well, I don't even
3: know that it's moving away from the reductionist side so much as we can't say with any level of certainty what it is just because it is a spectrum and it's at what point on that spectrum do we start calling things good or bad. And that in and of itself, you're just making an arbitrary line of demarcation. And it, it's not like at a, a certain percentage of VEGF alpha, you know, all of a sudden things are bad. It's just – depends on are you symptomatic or not more so
2: yeah i like how it values like yeah like the symptom presentation and like the subjective report because this is almost like the the hip talk with the cam the cam changes like how are we defining it and kind of just arbitrarily drawing a line
1: yeah i I think um the idea that we're using tinnopathy to represent symptoms in this case is a, a good idea and i agree with derek that it's it's more of the spectrum and we really don't know where on the spectrum, a person who's symptomatic falls as it relates to morphological mechanical changes. And we'll definitely get into that when we get into the narrative review today. Um, they did make a point to delineate between tendinopathy and tendon tear. Um, and so a tendon tear would be a partial or complete at the macroscopic level tear of a tendon. And the interesting thing is like, uh, and this is a whole nother podcast we probably could do on this topic, is it doesn't necessarily give us any delineation based on the current evidence of how those need to be effectively managed based on whether it's a partial or complete tendon tear. Do you guys have any thoughts on that?
3: Well, I think it's specific. I, I, are you talking about in reducing risk? Um, because I, I would definitely argue that a partial rotator cuff tear has a lot more evidence for being asymptomatic than a partial Achilles tear at this point.
1: No, they were just saying that we needed to be aware that there these are distinct differences between a tendinopathy and a tendon tear, but even with tendon tears, that, uh, and they didn't think that we had enough evidence, at least in this consensus statement, to say particularly how one had to be managed. I think rotator cuff, partial tears, and even complete tears is a good example of that, uh, having written on that and looked into it and going to present on it soon. We don't have a lot of evidence to say a particular way has to be done to treat those. But that's a whole other podcast for sure.
2: No, I would I would agree with that because then at least we're like we're delineating the like the path that we're trying to take. We're not trying to like lump everything in together in the tendinopathy umbrella.
1: Right, right. I think that was their yeah. whole purpose of that statement. Now, interestingly enough, um, you know, I, I I think we're all probably. I mean, I am. I don't want to speak for you guys. Guilty of extrapolating out evidence from what we currently have on tendinopathies to all tendons and kind of a tendon is a tendon is a, a tendon kind of mindset when we're treating this in clinic. Um, but really, the bulk of the data that we have on this topic is patellar, Achilles, um, and I don't even know how much data we have on this, but they felt like we had enough to say that this would also fall with peroneal tendinopathies and medial lateral elbow tendinopathies. And that is where we have the, the majority of our data for discussing this. Real, More importantly, or mostly, would be patellar and Achilles more than anything. And so we really are extrapolating out a lot of our approach to this discussion from these kind of two primary areas. And then they made a point to say, you know, there wasn't enough data to make informed decisions or to have representation for rotator cuff, posterior tibial tendinopathies and gluteal tendinopathies. Do you guys have anything to to weigh in on that?
3: Well, really, if you look at it, as far as the heavy, slow resistance side that tends to get heavily advocated, there's only three papers, two by and one by Bayer or Bayer. I'm not entirely sure how to say his name. And even out of those, there wasn't much difference between the Center group and the heavy, slow group as far as the actual outcomes went. It was just the heavy, slow resistance side of things took much less time to perform, and you had some higher patient satisfaction as a result of that. But you did see some like changes to the tendon in one of the Kongsgaard papers. But it, you know, the authors in the consensus statement even go on to say that we can't necessarily correlate a change in the actual local tendon structure with a change in the actual functional structure.
2: Yeah, it seems to go back to like we're still at those early phases of we're shifting the narrative. We're learning new things, but you know, these early papers are going to have a huge impact because there's not a lot to compare it to. Um, and as we move forward, hopefully the data sets get bigger that we look at different regions of the body. The reproducibility is improved and the questions become more, you know, kind of nuanced. Yes. Yes, exactly. There you go. (laughs) I I didn't want to say it. It's not my word, but I'll use it.
1: Um, I mean, I imagine the reason the bulk of our data is on patellar and Achilles is that's just prevalence-based issues. Like, that's where we tend to see the majority of people presenting with symptoms, and so that's why it gets researched the most, would you guys say? I think it depends
3: on the population you work with. I'm sure someone listening to this podcast works with runners, and they're like, I see so much peroneal tendinopathy, and it's just the population that you tend to gravitate towards.
1: Yeah, it's easy to to be siloed into your clinical practice. I, I was more thinking just, like, broad-stroking, globally speaking, yeah. collectively, the presentation.
2: I wonder also if, like, other presentations get lumped into other um, umbrella terms. Like, something that always, like, pops out to me is, like, bursitis. Like, lateral hip pain gets called bursitis a lot, and I wonder if that mislabeling has caused issues in, like, researching it and kind of, you know, pooling it together.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it gets down to, like, how are we classifying these things in clinic and are we doing it appropriately, which is a really good segue, Amato, into clinical presentation of these. Uh, do you want to tackle that? Sure, yes.
2: Um, so, I, I mean, I think this is where the, or like the subjective reporting comes into play a lot. And so it's interesting doing these, like now starting to do these consults online, and you're like making these judgment calls on based on subjective reporting. So, but I think a lot of it is seems to be pretty clear in terms of these kind of like long term, long standing symptoms that are pretty local and focal to tendonous areas. And I think the Achilles and patellar tendon are probably easy to study too because you can like point to them pretty easily. So location. Um, duration of symptoms being like usually longer than a few weeks and being um kind of reactive and affected by activity seems to be kind of like the the hallmarks of uh, tendinopathy at least kind of what i'm seeing day to day in the clinic
3: well, I think a lot of it. You, when it presents to clinic, it's there wasn't one inciting event, or if there was, you'll see it, it typically involved a dramatic spike in volume, and that typically is a major part of the subjective. So it's not uncommon in the running population. If you see someone who's been averaging 20 miles a week and then they decided they wanted to ramp up to 60 and they're like, well, now I have some anterior knee pain or some heel pain and, a lot of it is the carryover same into the weightlifting population where it's, I just started this new program, I'm two weeks in, and I started developing some anterior knee pain. I have three times the volume of squats that I had prior.
1: Yeah, and that's typically what I see. Like, I, uh, the way it gets listed in the research is kind of like focal tenderness to the, the tendon itself. Um, so if we're talking like patellar, it would be at the superior pole, so just beneath the patella. Are at the tibia, uh, so inferior pole of the patellar tendon. And then usually, um, like, a lot of times people report being okay at rest. It's the second that they load the area. So any type of mechanical stimulus uh, has a provocation for symptoms. So a lot of times you'll hear, like, going up and down stairs, squatting. For us in the resistance training world, especially with barbell medicine, it's I go to do squats or I'm doing, um, you know, I, oddly enough, even though we don't have a ton of evidence on this. I see a lot of like high hamstring issues, so like deadlifting, hip hinges, stuff like that. Um, that I would label as a quote unquote tendinopathy um, is usually how we see it with the resistant focused athletes. And so uh, it comes down to um, usually, like you guys are saying, some type of history of doing something that they've not adapted to, or they're they're doing more volume than they previously been doing, or I've never ran before and I'm doing a couch to five k. Uh, which is fine. There's there's nothing wrong with that if you're appropriately dosing it. But maybe the program is well above anything they've done previously. And so they start getting these kind of uh, focal symptoms to, to attend an area. And um, it's interesting because I think a good discussion we could have today is we don't really know. Um, there's no one way to approach this doses discussion that we'll likely get into later on. But there's no... Um, I don't want to say right or wrong way because there's certainly a wrong way to do this stuff, but we don't have an idea of like, oh, okay, well, you're, you've you been symptomatic for two weeks, so we've got to regress way back to this, or we've got to approach it from three sets of 15 or four by 12 going back to the heavy slow resistance like Derek was talking about earlier. It It is very individualized, I think, at this point, and we don't have uh, a general idea of this is the one way to approach this discussion. What do you guys think?
3: I think this is one of the few times where you can, well, um, even back up on that one of the times where you can really make a case that biomechanics seem to matter in, in the treatment paradigm itself. And one thing that has come out increasingly is tendons do not adapt well to compression forces and tend to not, um, not respond as well, even symptomatically. And if you look in the case of a patellar tendinopathy, sometimes you'll have a lot of athletes that are doing the right thing as far as the exercise or even trying to work through the dosage. But sometimes something as simple as blocking someone's anterior tibial translation, you can, take a little bit of that load off the, or the compressive load across the patellar tendon and they'll respond to it better. So the game ultimately comes down to like finding the right exercise that works and you can do with either reduced symptoms or symptom free, and then continuing to do that thing. The the biggest thing with tendinopathy rehab is it's boring. Like it's getting good at doing the same thing over and over and over again. And that consistency really seems to be the biggest thing for the long-term outcomes I mean, even the original Alfredson's protocol, which we base 90% of what we say about tendons off of, was three sets of 15 heel raises twice a day. And the progression out of that was originally starting off the ground and then starting to work off a step. And the reason they wanted the step out of it is so you could go through the full range of motion, but they actually held that originally because they wanted to avoid additional compression on the Achilles tendon.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, compression. I was talking about high hamstring issues earlier. And that seems to be uh, a big issue, especially for people who like sit, like students and stuff during the day and are constantly compressing that area. That's a common complaint I hear when I'm trying to help people with that stuff.
3: Yeah. And it really is. If you look at, we have good ideas on way to work or ways to work through an Achilles or a patellar tendinopathy, but especially like a high hamstring tendinopathy, there isn't a Nordic hamstring curl or a Copenhagen adductor exercise. You know, there isn't that one thing that we tend to really kneel on every time. And it is finding through a variety of hamstring exercises, often
1: what the athlete tolerates. Yeah, it, it 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 becomes this like well, let's try. You know, uh, I wouldn't even do seated a lot of times with them because it just further is compressing areas. I'm like, let's try lying. Or okay, we're not tolerating that well. Let's try a single like hip thrust or a step up. Or and it really is just like trying to find this tolerable entry point into activity with which to build from. I about mean, I didn't mean to cut you off. Were you going to say something? No, I
2: was going to make that exact point: the high hamstring and like the sitting is is usually an, an obstacle, but. Yeah, when when I'm when I'm thinking about variables, I I'm thinking less about contraction type and I'm thinking more about like position, speed, and load, and like those are the variables I can change. And so, it, it, if that is an isometric, that is like an eccentric, if that is a eccentric concentric, it those are like the those are the speeds and positions and everything you can modulate. But it's it's kind of wide open. You can get kind of creative if you know what the symptomatic um task is you can kind of like work and build around that and then just kind of progress from there and the progression is just basic kind of strength and conditioning but the the boring aspect of it like derek alluded to do you have a new injury or pain that prevents you from training leaves you unsure about what to do in the gym or how to recover Or have you had some long-standing ache and pain that you've been pushing through, maybe trying to ignore, but hoping it goes away? In either case, we'd highly suggest learning more about pain and injury, and to that end, we offer consultations with Derek Miles, Michael Ray, and Michael Amato, the barbell medicine pain and rehabilitation experts. They offer one-time consults or a combination of an initial consultation plus rehab-focused programming and follow-up over time. As evidence-based experts in the field, they apply a comprehensive biopsychosocial approach to guide your path towards normal function and performance. Consoles are for ages 18 plus only.
1: All right, so let's get into this narrative review. And kind of one of the jumping off points I have, and and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but... Overall, it seems at this time that the evidence that we have about tendon level changes is about as clear as mud as it relates to symptomatic development. And so when I'm talking about, and when we are talking about tendon level changes, the kind of two categories that this gets uh, listed under are morphological changes. So if I were to take the piece of the the tendon and put it under a microscope, these are the alterations we're going to see, which is like increased vascularity, increased nerve fiber, Um, density, as well as collagen misalignment. And then we also see mechanical alterations as far as it relates to how the tendon kind of produces, transmits, and absorbs forces. And so looking at morphological and mechanical alterations, they usually classify a tendon as kind of quote-unquote textbook norm versus quote-unquote degenerated. And I use those terms very loosely because we're not seeing a strong correlation at this time to what those changes look like and someone developing symptoms. And the, I think they did a good job with this um, overall, like looking at the totality of evidence as it relates to this discussion. Um, and they created a bit of a dichotomy that I do and don't like. But uh, part of the reason I like it is they say, well, here's all the changes we're seeing at the tendon. How is that affecting the individual and their symptom presentation and performance? And kind of in our outline, I have the shrug emoji because it seems like these two don't line up as well as we would like to see them if we're, we're hoping to gain a lot of knowledge um, from a biological standpoint as it relates to this. What were you guys' big takeaways from this article?
2: Yeah, it seems to go, like, both ways in a lot of the discussions about the, the changes they're measuring, whether it's, like, stiffness or the actual um, collagen, the compliance, the blood flow. Um I, I think the good thing is that they, they highlight the uncertainty of it, but they're also putting it in an optimistic standpoint where you can make a lot of person-level changes without having to make a lot of uh, localized tendon changes. So that definitely makes like the rehab process more optimistic for us. Uh, again, we just don't have any like concrete things to say, like this is exactly what's going to influence... Um, person level changes if we're looking at the physiological changes at the tendon level since we have like conflicting evidence on both ends of the spectrum
3: so this overall gets into the problem with probabilistic thinking because if you really look at the data if you do have things that are considered less than ideal adaptations on imaging you are at an increased likelihood of experiencing some symptoms but that increased likelihood gets turned into you are going to increase symptoms or you are going to have some kind of negative effect. And that's not the case. And really, the literature has moved to where we realize tenants can adapt now. They're just slow. And we can stress them in certain ways in order to create adaptations that would be considered more ideal. And It's not yes, no, it's more how likely is this to occur, and most of the time that is contingent upon stress that's being applied to the tendon. But with tendons being slow to adapt, it kind of makes sense on why – you see these studies about jump load being equal across a team, yet some people becoming symptomatic and some people not. Well, odds are that 12-week jump program that tendon had adapted in the prior 17 years of their life in 12 weeks is not even a flash in the pan as far as the overall stimulus load that that tendon's taken time to adapt to.
1: Yeah. I, there are two, um, two good words that we've used so far in this discussion that weren't defining that they did in this paper, which would be uh, adaptation, which is they define as how an organism organ system or tissue alters its structure or function to best suit its environment, which I like. It's kind of a dynamical definition for this. And they, they do say, you know, and I think this is really important when we get into to rehab in just a minute. Is that tendon adaptation is driven by application or absence of mechanical stimuli? Um, and and the reason that's important is I still today in clinics see people coming to me after six weeks of inactivity, and I'm like, well, okay, so you got symptoms. Like, why did you stop all activity? Well, that's what I was advised by, you know, ex title, whoever that may be, is I need to just rest. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, if this is truly a tenantopathy. That's, that's the last thing we want to do because the second you just go into full rest mode and you completely offload the area, you are now teaching the attendant to adapt to a lower level of activity than you were already adapted to, which is a a very net negative approach to this. Um, Right, if you guys want to add anything on that, yeah. From from working
3: in Peds, I tend to frame everything through the school system now, and the yeah. an analogy that I'll use all the time is, you know, if you fail a math test, you don't spend the next six weeks not studying math and then go take the test again and expect to pass. Oh, that's good. It really is like this absolute rest. If you're going back to the same level of load, the expectation of you're going to adapt through rest, you may improve your symptoms, but you certainly haven't changed anything that's going to make you better apt to handle what you're going through.
1: Right. And and this is a good lead-in to uh, load capacity defined. And they it's a it's an okay definition. I like aspects of it. And they define load capacity as able to perform functional, whatever that means, movements at the volume and frequency required without exacerbating injury, whatever that means, or causing tissue injury, which is potentially mediated through changes in tendon properties and or kinetic function. The biggest takeaway from this is like the area is going to adapt to the stimulus that you apply and don't apply. And so this really gets into the nuanced discussion of how do we find entry-level activity that you can tolerate with tolerable symptoms and then build from there to increase your capacity to go back to the things you want to be able to do. And to Mata's point earlier, like what are the things as clinicians that we can control in this discussion is A, we need to set expectations about dealing with tendinopathic issues. And then B, what is the end goal? What do I need to get you back to doing? And what are the things that I can implement to help with that process? And that really gets into a discussion of volume and intensity and frequency the the nuanced discussion of dosage of activity to build you up to um and i think this would be a really good good segue to get into the last thing i would want to say on load capacity is that it's really important to realize based on what we're seeing the evidence right now is load capacity is not related to pathology meaning we can take a group of athletes who present with like image findings with tendon alterations, and they're able to do the performance tasks we're imposing upon them and finding the uh, equally just like those with normative, quote-unquote, tendons. Now, to Derek's point, maybe what was being studied was a stimulus that's well below what they've already adapted to, and if I was to throw them into a tournament weekend where they're playing multiple games in the weekend, maybe that would be sufficient stimulus to set off the, quote-unquote, de because it does place them at a greater risk. But it's important to realize, like, we can make changes in the human and the individual and the athlete and the performance without worrying ourselves about tendon adaptations morphologically or even mechanically. So anything you guys want to add to that before we dive into? I know what everyone wants to hear is how do we approach this?
2: No, that sounds good.
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree with those points. But I do think to the same point, you can turn it on its head and and really try and emphasize to athletes that if you want this to adapt in the long term at the structural level, like even if we get you feeling better, this is going to be a process. And these simple things that we may talk about maybe should be a part of your program for a while. And how long is a while? Well, that's contingent upon the athlete and what really their goals are. and. Too often, I think we stop the sentence early because we say, are you strong enough? And the second part of the sentence is, are you strong enough to do what you're trying to do? And, you know, having a certain amount of capacity is completely contingent upon the athlete's level and their goals. And we need to titrate whatever we're going to give them and where we're trying to aim according to those goals.
1: Oh, it sounds like you're uh, setting expectations, Derek. Always. I like it. (laughs) That really is like the first step in this process is, A, um, symptoms are going to be a part of this process. And I, I lead with that when we're dealing with these issues because a lot of times I have already heard the narrative, well, it hurts, therefore don't do activity that <laughs> makes it hurt, right? And so they go into this rest mode or they offload completely or they drastically alter a lot of uh, what they have been doing. And I'm like, symptoms are going to be a part of the process. The question is, is how much can we tolerate And given that we know the utility of imaging as it relates to this right now uh, isn't necessary clinically, and I'm certainly not sending out tendinopathic cases that I see in clinic to go get ultrasounded or anything. And so we don't need to worry about, in this case, so much that, oh, I'm having symptoms, therefore I'm damaging myself. Now, what a way I frame it to them is we want it to to have tolerable symptoms through activity where it's not exceeding um, the point where you feel debilitated, so unable to go do other life activities or it's constantly occupying your thoughts. So I kind of lead with that expectation that symptoms will be a part of the process, but that's okay. We need to find tolerable symptoms with which to build from to increase your capacity back to activity. And then to Derek's point is this is going to be a process. And I don't have, you know, the big question is, well, what's the time frame? And the only article that I've seen that even remotely attempts to give a timeframe, uh, I can't remember the the particular paper, but it was a 12-week Time frame. And that was just because I believe that was the dosage of the intervention that they utilized. And so I don't know that we have a good grasp on how long this, this process will take to get you. We can get you back to activity, but it's a question of what other things, to Derek's point, do we need to keep you doing so you can adapt, be able to do this, the activity you want to be able to do. You guys have anything to add to those two expectations?
2: Well, I think it's a good like learning process too for the uh, patient or athlete because if they haven't done this yet, then they're gonna gain a lot in terms of like how learning how to manage both like training and symptoms and uh, kind of life activity for if this comes up again or something similar similar like this comes up again. I feel like tendinopathy is like rehab it in a nutshell where you get to like do all these like long-term process expectation setting you know you're we're making local changes we're also making global changes so it kind of like i feel like it's a good teaching moment uh for the patient in terms of how to keep doing this beyond just this episode
1: derek you got anything to add
3: no, I mean, uh, a lot of this, when I have the conversations with athletes, I'm like, we can get this feeling better. Uh, a large part of this is implementing some strategies with which to reduce the risk of it happening again. Yep. And as it directly relates to the barbell athlete, a lot of times, I'm like, if this is protective and we're going to have a GPP day in your program, I mean, if it's general physical preparation, maybe your general needs to include a little bit specific just to make sure that we're reducing the risk of having some issues in the past, not saying I'm going to prevent it from happening. Once again, we're reducing the risk.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a good case um, to, to make for like isolation specific movements to the area that's affected. You know, if I'm dealing with uh patellar tendinopathy, then odds are like, I probably will keep in bilateral squatting movements if I can, if you're, if you're so, if you're so sensitized and symptomatic, that we um, and this will get into the dosage discussion, but let's say you're like, hey, I can uh, I can't barbell back squat at all through any range of motion. Meaning, like the second iron racket from uh, the rack, I start having symptoms as I initiate the squat. Then I'm going to be like, okay, well, that's a 45 pound bar for most places, or 20 kilo entry point into activity can I switch you to a goblet squat and do full range of motion squatting with you, which will give me more options at lower weight. And if I'm not able to do that, then it's okay. Is there a particular range of motion where you're more symptomatic that I can just cut out for a little bit and then reintroduce. If you're not able to do that, then I might be, can we leg press or can we do something else? But even then I still like to include isolation movements to the affected extremity. So maybe we do single leg leg extensions or we do step ups or split squats? Um, how do you guys kind of approach that?
2: I think a lot of times it's about doing something that uh, they didn't think that they should or could. You know, I think like a lot of those isolation or single leg movements. You know, it depends on where you're coming from. If you're a runner and you don't have any history of strength training, then obviously those might be easier entry points. But then if you're a barbell athlete and you mostly do like the big movements, you may not have thought that that was going to be an effective strategy. So I think it's like introducing those novel ideas, but that are going to lead up to the bigger picture end goals is, can be quite powerful in the beginning. Cause then it gives you something tangible that you can work with and kind of progress. Um, and then if you're looking at it from the tendon aspect, like the isolation work seems to be more inducive of, that look, those local changes that we're aiming for in the long term, So it's kind of a a win-win.
3: I think a lot of times we get so focused as athletes. And I know I've been guilty of this myself of focusing on the activity we can't do and getting frustrated that I can't deadlift or I can't squat. And we forget about the fact that there's like hundreds of thousands of exercises that we can be doing. And maybe if we go do those things for a little while, we can come back and do the thing that we really want to do. And that's part of the whole process. I think a lot of times, especially we were definitely gravitating towards bucketing either endurance athletes or barbell athletes out of this. And, you know, telling a runner they can't run is, is, not the greatest conversation and telling a power lifter they can't squat is no less fun, but being able to say, well, we may not be able to do this for a short span, but here are other things you can do with which to satiate your desire to train.
1: Yeah. I think it's just giving them options and getting them to realize like we can still keep you active. And in fact, that's what we need to do so you don't have a complete loss of baseline fitness levels. Um, but, you know, here, here are the options that we can do, and that's part of setting those expectations and getting buy-in from people. And then I, uh, I think it's important, too, that it's okay if you have a flare-up in symptoms. We, we'll deal with it. I think a lot of times people can be humming along, and maybe they're even several weeks in, and for whatever reason, they get symptoms. And, uh, and there, there's a lot of variables that play into that symptomatic development. And it's setting the expectation like that happens, that that's a normal aspect of this process. We might not need to make any changes or maybe we need to make some changes. Let's reevaluate and kind of regroup and then move forward. But kind of normalizing uh, that as an aspect of the process, I think helps out a lot, especially for people dealing with tendinopathies. Um, So I have down here, like when we're talking dosage of loading and types of loads, I know uh, Derek and I have talked about this a lot, like, uh, our propensity, unless you've changed, correct me if you have, Derek, is especially if I'm dealing with a team-based sport athlete or an individual athlete who does like a lot of cyclical loading, like cycling or swimming or running, I tend to move away from dynamic loads in the beginning stages to help with symptom regression and then start uh, titrating this back in to tolerance. But while I'm doing that, I bring in, um, isotonic contractions, so eccentric, concentric contractions, typically with the bias of eccentric loading, so resistance training focused stuff. Uh, You still approach it that way, Derek, or have you changed?
3: No, that's pretty much the exact heuristic I operate off of, and it really is. It's so simple, it's complex, because it's, can you do this one thing right now and go get good at that, and then we can start layering in out of it, Um, but it really, from the evidence, uh, I'm comfortable going out and saying that the tempo of the movement seems to have an effect, and tendons tend to be a little bit more aggravated or um, sensitized to fast movements. And so just keeping things controlled and and controlling for your variables tends to let athletes tolerate more before getting back into actually loading in a speed power paradigm. Amato,
2: is that similar to how you approach it? Yeah. I think it's just easier to control when you like, Slow the speed down of the movement, and um you give them a little more like uh autonomy and kind of control of the movement, also like it you know limits the load as well in the beginning, but it just depends on their end goal you know if it's if they're a sprinter if they're a, a field athlete, then the rate of speed is gonna need to increase, but for now, we can just kind of taper it down and then build it back up if they don't really need that out of the tasks that are um uh, you know bothersome I mean there's always gonna be some rate of, rate of speed or rate of uh change, but um you don't have to go crazy you don't have to make them be doing like you know triple hops into like full sprints and stuff like that, but it kind of comes to back to what what, are, what their end goals are, so decrease speed, maybe even start at no speed isometrics and then kind of work back up to what's gonna be conducive for them,
1: yeah, and I fully admit my bias is is to load the athlete, uh, with an external load with resistance training. Um, and I know this is a hot button topic, especially if you follow anyone on Twitter in the tendinopathy world, I don't think isometrics are a magic bullet to anything. I don't know that, uh, we have any supportive, like or we don't have sufficient supportive evidence to be like, there's a one way contraction to approach these things. But, uh, I do agree with Derek and, and what you're saying, Amato, that, I tend to offload dynamic loads in the beginning while introducing isotonic loads with a tempo. Do, do we have evidence that like, you've got to go isometrics first or you've got to go, I don't think so. And, and the studies that I've seen is that uh, the type of contraction probably matters a lot less than what some people want to argue. Do you guys have anything to add to that?
2: Well, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, this was like hammered home when I, uh, Took Scott Morrison's course recently, but he was like, tendons don't really, they're not contractile tissue, so all they they respond to is tension, and so isometric tension and concentric tension and eccentric tension, tensile, the tendon the same way, it's just more of like the magnitude and the rate of uh, tension that's going to affect it. So at the end of the day, like the contraction doesn't matter. I mean, it does for the functional aspect of the task, but in terms of actually treatment and deciding the exercise, you can get more, you can, there's less rules about which contraction time yeah. is going to be the best.
1: It's getting comfortable in the gray for sure. Like it's, I don't, when I have these conversations with people, I'm like, well, this is how we're going to approach it. And then, cause the question usually comes out of this with like team-based sport athletes or endurance athletes. is like, when can I go back to running? And it's like, there's no hard and fast rule of how long I have to wait to implement this. And there's no hard and fast rule how I implement it, but I do tend to focus on like, if you're an endurance runner, like an ultra marathoner or something, I'm probably going to start at lower volume and lower intensity and just slowly introduce running. Like, can you go tolerate an 800 meter run at a moderate pace and intensity and see how you respond? And so it's still finding that entry point of activity with which to build from when we start layering back in those dynamic movements.
2: The Barbell Medicine Review is a monthly publication where the doctors provide insight into the latest scientific research and deliver it right to your inbox. Every month, doctors Jordan Feigenbaum, Austin Baraki, Derek Miles, and Mike Ray pick one scientific paper apiece that pertains to strength training, nutrition, pain science, injury management, or other related topics and write an editorial describing the methods, results, overall impact, and practical application of the papers being discussed. All four editorials are peer-reviewed by the other doctors to make sure that the information being delivered in the Barbell Medicine Review is accurate and accessible. We also provide citations for both the primary paper being discussed as well as the supporting evidence where applicable. If you've been looking for a resource to help you stay up to date on the latest research on these topics, this is a great option and we would love to share it with you.
3: Mike, I think to your point, especially with the example of the ultra marathoner, though, it creates a little bit of a discussion about where we start as well, because I don't know that I would be as predisposed to start an ultra runner with an 800 meters just because that to them is the equivalent of like you and I walking 20 feet. and. I think sometimes knowing what their goals are cuz you know most of us if we had someone who squatted 750 we would start them with an empty barbell but that same workout we would probably our plan will be to work up to what would be considered a relatively significant amount of weight for most humans and I think for the ultra runner my question is typically well at what distance do you really feel like your warm up is complete and most of them don't even feel warm until three miles. So, you know, it's, okay, today we're going to try for a three-mile run, which to our couch to 5K person, three miles may be the top end of what they're really trying to accomplish on a regular basis. So it's being able to titrate into, like, what that athlete is adjusted to and kind of what their expectations are. Now, if the ultra runner has symptoms at two and a half miles, I'd say, okay, there's our ceiling. We know where we are. Let's live there.
1: Yeah, I was just using it as, like, off-the-cuff example. Uh, I agree you need to find some type of tolerable entry point that would be relative to prior engagement of activity. All right, so the next thing would be intensity, um, which could be measured a lot of different ways, which would be, well, let's go back to volume for just a second. For the resistance-focused athlete, we're often talking about sets and reps, for resistance training, um, and then also I would tend to lump frequency into volumes, the number of days of training. These are all the things that you could start, you could start changing to make an impact on uh, symptoms and getting them to keep doing activity and build from there. And so um, I know, especially in the powerlifting world and weightlifting, the focus tends to be on lower reps and higher intensities a lot of times. And so maybe that's the first change we make is we decrease external intensity and internal intensity while slightly upping volume and see how they respond and and build from there. When we talk about intensity, that could be internal. So obviously our bias is going to be using rate of perceived exertion or RIR reps and reserve. And then external intensity would be the load in which they're trying to lift. If we're talking, though, from a sport specific standpoint, like let's go back to our endurance athlete with the runner, volume would be much more related for them to number of days of the week that they're running, the distance in which they're running as well. And then intensity would be more focused on a time factor, which could still be volume as well, like how long are they running for? And then the time factor for intensity is how quickly are they completing a certain amount of distance? And also intensity could be The terrain in which they're running on, you know, the gradient change could make a big difference in how difficult they find, you know, one mile versus another. And then internal intensity tends to still be rate of perceived exertion for them that uh, I I use. You could also use heart rate uh, as well. Um, Do you guys have anything to add to volume, intensity, and frequency?
3: No, no, I just go ahead. No, I was going to say I just think the main point here is. It gets back to what we were talking about earlier and that there isn't a baking recipe for this. It's going to be nuanced to the individual athlete. And that's when it is good to talk to a professional who has some experience in this, just because the conversation I have often with athletes is it's not necessarily where are we going, but where do we start? And if we can figure out that starting point, then everything else really does start becoming a little bit of a math problem.
2: Yeah, it's like just keeping track of what you're actually attempting to change and and then by changing that, what are you striving to get back to instead of just like randomly changing things and then like not tracking where you're heading because you can change one of those variables or you can change more than one of those variables. It just kind of depends on where they're coming from and where they're going.
1: Yeah, it, it, it gets interesting because um, a lot of <laughs> both on social media and in clinic, like, the things that are getting done for tendonopathies, we could spend a ton of time, multiple episodes talking about exercise dosage and how to adjust things based off of just case studies that we've seen. Um, and overall, we would probably have our individual way of approaching it, but similar heroistics throughout the process because it is creating the right recipe for the human we're dealing with based off of what they're trying to return to, prior training history, how symptomatic they are, so on and so forth. Um but a lot of the times, like you see these ridiculous kind of passive modalities that people are doing about, oh, well, I'm going to instrument assist it, soft tissue manipulate that patellar tendon, or I'm going to tape it, or I'm going to dry needle it, or I'm going to do whatever. And they're like, oh, they got you know pain relief, therefore I'm helping them. And I think a good discussion we could have is like, you're probably giving a false sense of confidence in their ability to go out and load that area. Because you've given symptom reduction, when really this is a, a load based issue, the poison and the treatment is managing loading of the area. And although, yes, we're going to get symptom relief out of this, that's not our primary concern long term uh, as far as like educating on how to approach risk reduction with tendinopathies. Uh, before I go too far on a rant, my blood pressure spikes on this. What do you guys have to add about passive modalities and tendinopathies? I bet. I think the I think the hard part with this is like I and
2: I think people understand that though. I think people understand like that the tendon issue is gonna need a long term strategy. Then I and then I think the and this is like the classic argument is gonna be like, well, what can we do right now to make it less symptomatic and then that way we can train, which obviously I don't uh abide to and agree with, but I think it's the hard part is like there's some dissonance. Like I think people understand that there's gonna have to be some active strategy, but they're still piling on the passive strategies, and I think that's like where the headbutting comes into play, and that becomes a challenging conversation. But I, I, I think we, I think we have enough variables that we can address that can help in the short term as well as the long term. Not that we need an immediate short term effect, but everything we just talked about in terms of like activity management and looking at different exercises that you can tolerate, I, I, I think you can make the short term changes. That eventually lead into the long-term changes without them being separated because then like the addition of the passive modalities in the beginning I don't know how to progress that like that doesn't have progression that just has like a do use or do not use depending on symptom presentation which doesn't really have like a sound heuristic to me at least
3: I'm going to go back to my math test analogy from earlier. And I think passive modalities are, is essentially the equivalent of if you failed the math test, putting a sticker saying you did it on the math test, you still failed it. You may feel better because you got a sticker, but it's certainly, you're not getting any better at math from getting that sticker. And that's basically the bucket that I would put a lot of the passive modalities in. Like, under no circumstances is it making you a better athlete. Under no circumstances is it helping you adapt. And it really is, especially with a lot of the crap that gets said in the implementation of the passive modalities. Listen, if you want a foam roll because it feels good, knock yourself out. If you want to do some soft tissue stuff because it feels good, knock yourself out. If you think it is helping you get back on the track faster, helping you recover faster, or helping your tendon adapt, none of those things are occurring. Yeah,
2: nope. I would. Uh, nope.
1: I don't know that I have a whole lot to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> is your
2: blood pressure lower or
1: higher now? I I feel I feel better now. Nice <laughs> <Yeah. My> placebo,
2: <laughs> right?
1: It, well, and and so like, I think my biggest issue that I I'm probably a broken record at this point than anyone that actually listens to me, the handful of people, is it's the narrative. I'm like, what are you saying? to validate sticking a needle in my patellar tendon. Like, okay, like how are you even validating that? And I imagine what happens, because that's just my experience and what I see anecdotally from clinicians when I listen to this and see other clinics operate, is, well, I just tell them it's going to knock their pain down. Okay, well, I mean, we can spend the next, I don't know, how many days discussing placebo-like contextual effects and how we can knock their pain down a lot of different ways, and I don't have to stick a needle in them or put a piece of tape on them or create any other BS narrative to substantiate a modality that, especially as it relates to tendinopathies, I think has uh, very little to no efficacy whatsoever for addressing this issue, most especially addressing the patient's thoughts and beliefs and perceptions about the pain they're presenting with as it relates to this issue, and then how to approach it long-term from education, risk reduction, and load management. So I think it really, really misses the mark and approaching this from a passive approach. This is a load mismanagement. So the very word of passive, not active, doesn't even compute for me when you're trying to address a load management-based issue. That's all I got.
3: Well, and I think this also demonstrates the fundamental misunderstanding of scale for a lot of this. And I think some of this really gets into my biochem background because it drives me crazy when you see these cross-sectional slides of tendons that show something that would be considered disadvantageous. And if you look at the little scale on the quarter, it's normally on the scale of micrometers or nanometers. And Being able to think that you can be that specific with any intervention, that's like putting a period on a wall 15 feet away and thinking you can throw a dart and hit it. I could probably do that. I'm sure you (laughs) – you know what? I think you should develop a continuing education course to teach people how to do it. But really that's what it comes down to. If you look at – A lot of these things, and especially as we're talking about tendon, we haven't really touched on this, but the adaptations that we would consider either advantageous or disadvantageous are heterogeneous within the tendon. It's not like the whole thing just red light, green lights into something that would be considered not ideal. And to think you can be specific with your treatment to wherever the pocket of something you're going to call pathological is, is just farcical it's 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 bordering on idiocy i am comfortable making that level of statement
1: yeah yeah and, uh, and this is a whole other podcast as well but i remember writing the instrument assisted soft tissue manipulation blog for logica rehab and when i dove into that the the origins of iastm i was like oh so we did this on rat tendons and then extrapolated and assumed that we were having the same effect and Turns out that that just doesn't work at all, to Derek's point about scale. Uh, it, it's just really, really bad arguments and typical false premises. And yeah, it just, I think the way I could sum this up is um, I, I don't recommend passive modalities in general, and I certainly don't recommend them for tenonopathy based issues. And I am comfortable with saying that I think you are doing the person a disjustice justice if that's a focal point of treatment for tenopathic-based issues, that should not be it at all. We should be talking about how to approach this from an activity standpoint. Um, with that said, Amado, do you have anything to add to that?
2: No, I just can't believe it only took us seven episodes. Uh, it took us that long to get into a passive modality rant. Uh, Yeah. We held it off for, for so long.
1: I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the next thing that we see a lot of that I have down that we just need to touch on briefly is this idea of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory treatment. Uh, to me, that's heavily rooted to this idea of tendonitis, where people are being told, oh, this is an inflammatory-based issue. I'll just take NSAIDs and keep on going. And it's like, no, um, I haven't dove too, too far down the rabbit hole with NSAIDs for tendinopathies, but the little I've looked at doesn't seem supported at all. For making any meaningful biochemical changes as it relates to the utilization of NSAIDs and to the tendon. And then it still misses the mark of this is a load mismanagement issue.
2: Yeah, it's about understanding the pathophysiology. And then can you scale that to the person level? And like that, it just doesn't make sense. The NSAIDs don't fit into that puzzle.
3: Well even if we're going to accept that there is some inflammatory process to a, a tendinopathy, you know, my first question whenever this discussion comes up is you know what's the number one thing you need to heal yeah. in inflammation? Okay so why do I want to try and block that if I'm going to concede it's the number one thing that I need for healing to occur Yeah you know it, it just doesn't make sense and it's this assigning of positives and negatives to processes that just are. And there isn't a magical overload of tendinopathy there or like, as far as like all of a sudden the inflammation becomes negative. It's it's all on a spectrum.
1: Yeah. And this usually leads into like having tried NSAIDs and then we go to uh, steroid injections. Uh, And usually this gets siloed into locations like rotator cuff or so on and so forth. And then we're going to inject with a steroid there, but Everything I've seen, and I'll, I'll go ahead and say this for an umbrella approach for injection-based therapy, doesn't have much, if any, efficacy, uh, despite some of the popularity with things like PRP and prolotherapy for tendinopathies. Um, what do you guys think?
3: If it involves a needle, it has no good evidence for a tendinopathy. And that really is like once again, getting into this structuralist side of things like PRP, and I think this is good for the audience to understand, PRP is not PRP is not PRP. Every place does their PRP a little bit differently because a lot of, well, not because uh, some of this is related to the desire to create the proprietary PRP. Some of it is people think high leukocyte or low leukocyte PRP is more effective. There are now coming out randomized control trials that show that neither one of them are more effective than just a load management strategy. Steroid injections, it's the same premise to where we think if we can give this local anti-inflammatory effect, but we forget about the fact that some of that anti-inflammatory effect, especially via steroid or corticosteroid injection, has actually been shown to have some negative effects long-term on 10X. There's some rust there for sure. Yeah. And then 10X is just – I don't even know what to call it because I'm trying not to use profanity on the podcast anymore. It it essentially – yeah, it it essentially is just going in and sucking out part of the tendon, which once again, we're not really good at identifying what even is the pathological part of the tendon or how much to take out. And this thought that like taking out the pathological tendon is going to magically fix it, it is just idiotic. And there are no long-term studies or even short-term studies that I'm aware of beyond a few that are posted on the like company's website, as far as like n- nothing peer reviewed that even remotely is properly powered or shows any type of long term outcome. Have people gotten some relief out of 10x? Absolutely. Have people gotten relief out of crystal healing? Absolutely. Both have the same level of evidence. I mean, crystal healing
1: is pretty awesome. Uh, have you seen those? Crystals? I was
2: in Salem yesterday, and there was a
1: lot. I felt it. That's that's what came to mind. Do you feel like your entire being is rejuvenated?
2: Yeah, I, I uh, had some tingling in my foot last night and woke up this morning, hundred percent improved.
1: If you PR
3: your squat six weeks from now, I'm going to attribute it to your
1: it's crystal trip to save. Yes, yeah, yes, you yeah. need to go back and buy all of those, and we're going to create the Amato crystal therapy. And we're going to make a lot of money. It's this.
2: totally not my sandbagging of RP9, but really it's
1: an RP7. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the the tough reality uh, with this discussion is like, and we get passionate about this because people are told to rest on a regular basis. People are told to take insets on a regular basis. People are given, when those continuums fail, they're given steroid injections. When that fails, they're given PRP or prolotherapy, oftentimes not even covered by the person's healthcare insurance. And they're paying a lot of money out of pocket for these not efficacious treatments. And then it goes to 10X. And then the cycle continues back to rest. And then they talk to one of us. And we're like, well, yep, it looks like this has just been completely mismanaged for the past, I don't know, two years. Um, I had a case recently that went through all of that and had 10X. And I was like, yeah, um, this is bad, but there's nothing we can do about it now but get a game plan to get you back to activity and manage load accordingly and move forward. So we're passionate about this because it is actually happening. This isn't a mythical discussion where people don't go through this, this continuum of escalating interventions and they're still not getting relief or getting back to activity. So the, I think the way I could sum this up is the data that we do have on tendinopathies is we need to set expectations about symptoms and symptom management. And then the expectation that this is uh, the best term for this is tendinopathy because we're having a difficult time with finding out where on the spectrum of changes someone becomes symptomatic and why, and then realizing that this is a load mismanagement issue and that we need to find a tolerable entry point of activity with which to build from, to build your capacity back specifically to what you want to be able to do. And if the specificity matters, if I need you to be a sprinting based athlete, then at some point we've got to do some running and do some sprinting to get you back to that. And then getting long-term buy-in that this is going to be a process and it's okay to have setbacks. It's okay that you did really, really well with symptoms for four weeks and suddenly something happened, either a life stressor or we overreached on something and you got symptomatic again. That's part of the process. We've got to regroup and move forward. Do you guys have anything to add to that for closing comments?
2: Nothing. It's, it's a good wrap up. Like, I think the important part is like you're, you know, it's more than just, you're more than just a tendon, obviously. And that there's a lot of ways to start somewhere and scale back up to what you want to do.
3: Yeah. I think just to close, it would be to ask the question, have you been doing the basics for this? And in the basics really uh, can are contingent upon a proper load management strategy, finding something that works from an exercise paradigm and working there while trying to stay in the best shape as you can. The basics do not include any kind of fancy shiny objects being rubbed or stuck into you. And and until you've exhausted that, I, I would advocate to most athletes that they don't need any fancy shiny objects rubbed or stuck into them.
1: Yep. I would agree. Well, we look forward to any comments or feedback that you guys may have for this podcast. Um, obviously, if you need assistance, we do remote consultations with Barbell Medicine. This is a, a fairly prevalent issue that all three of us deal with on a regular basis, both in clinic and remotely. So we're happy to help out with guiding this process. Uh, next month's uh, Barbell Medicine Monthly Review, just kind of a, as a teaser of what's coming, is going to be all on tendinopathies. And so that issue will cover Uh, much more in detail what we've talked about today and then appropriate management as well so you might want to check that out if it's it's something that you're interested in learning more about so that will be for november's barbell medicine monthly review uh, journal all right well until next time thanks for tuning in and uh, keep training